There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. 1 Samuel chapter 21, if you can, please stand when you get that. 1 Samuel 21 and go down to verse 10. Bible says, Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul is slain his thousands, and David is ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let the saliva fall down on his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Look, you see this man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? So this fellow come into my house? Father, we thank you again that uh, we can just gather together in your name. We've enjoyed our time of fellowship, Lord. We've enjoyed the praise and worship. Now we turn to your word and pray, Father, that it would do that work in our hearts. We all need to hear a word from you today in some regard. Do that by your Holy Spirit, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. may be seated. Thank you. Welcome back to our study in 1 Samuel. If you recall from last week, we left uh, David in a time in his life that he's later going to regret. He just finished lying to a priest and procured the weapon that had did Goliath absolutely no good that fateful day that they met in the valley. I feel safe in saying that we've all had those times in life that we wish that we could turn back the clock and take back what we said or undo what we did. Unfortunately, life just doesn't afford us that opportunity. So we're left with how do we respond those times that we have crashed and burned? That's what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks. Verse 10, please. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Last week we saw that because of Snoop Doggy Doeg, David knew that he had to find somewhere to hide. If you weren't here last week and are wondering what a rapper is doing in 1 Samuel, this is why you didn't want to miss church. Now, fear of Saul has now temporarily replaced faith in the Lord for David. And so David fled the 23 miles to the enemy city of Gath. And as soon as he enters the city, people begin to recognize him, which is the last thing he needs at this point. How can I put this kindly? This is monumentally stupid on David's part. David strolls into town trying to look inconspicuous. One problem. Does anyone remember what Gath or what Goliath's hometown was? 
you guessed it, he was from Gath. But wait, there's more. If you order within the next ten minutes, we'll give you a second set of kitchen knives. Sorry about that. But there is more. Not only does David throw into the hometown of Goliath, do you remember what David was now carrying with him? He had taken from Nob the sword of Goliath. He said, said to Ahimelech, there is none like it. And now he has chosen to come to Gath with what must have been a rather difficult and distinctive weapon to hide. This is the exact same weapon that he had previously used to publicly cut off the Philistine owner's head. This just isn't smart, no matter how you look at it. It's kind of like going to a rap concert in a Ku Klux Klan sheet carrying a rebel flag. You're going to attract unwanted attention. And so we see another sorry episode in the life of David. If it were possible, he falls even further. David flees from Saul to Gath into the protection of King Achish. Let me tell you how strange, ironic, and sad the verse 10 is. Gath was the birthplace of Goliath, and Achish is the king of the Philistines. David is so full of fear that he is seeking sanctuary with the enemies of God. He has taken the sword of Goliath, whom he slew, and he is going to the birthplace of Goliath, seeking refuge. But think about the lunacy of this. These are the exact same people that he had defeated in battle. These are the people he killed in order to gain Saul's daughter's hand in marriage. He even stole 200 of their foreskins, if you remember that, back in chapter 18. I don't know if you remember that or even want to remember that. So does he really expect a good reception from these people? But I want to stop here for a moment and say some things to all of us this morning. I am in serious trouble when Achish is my only refuge. I am in severe danger and in grave peril when the enemies of God seems like the only place of sanctuary. We will clearly see this in a couple of verses. David's cover is about to get blown yet again. Look at verse 11 with me. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another and dance, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? These guys not only remember the sword, they even remember the song. Not only that, we are informed here that they were actually dancing to the song. Now, whether that was a waltz, a square dance, or break dancing, the Bible doesn't tell us. Now, the phrase they sing could be translated, they still sing, suggesting a popular tune of that time. David's fame was celebrated everywhere, including Philistia. Once again, we have to understand the implications of this song. David had slain his ten thousands of Philistines. His fame has been established at the expense of bereaved Philistine women and children. It's very possible that with every person that David met, he was directly responsible for the death of one of their loved ones. So here was an opportunity for the Philistines to take vengeance upon him. So David realizes that after he's been recognized, this isn't a safe place for me after all. 
And that's how it always is when we go into the world to try to find some safety, security, or satisfaction. If we do that, we will be spotted a mile away as a Christian. Or maybe I should say we will be smelled a mile away. Well, now i got your attention. Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 2.15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. We think that we are unrecognizable in the world, but the Bible says that there is a spiritual fragrance that follows all believers. You can try to talk and look as different as you want, but if you are a true child of God, it just won't work in the long run. You just smell different now. Something will always give you away. You'll say something like, Far out, Daddy-O, this party is groovy. Not realizing that no one says, Far out, Daddy-O, or groovy anymore. (laughs) Or maybe you'll pierce the wrong body part, but something will go wrong. And people will realize that despite your best efforts, you just aren't like they are. Listen to this quote. Watch a Christian who has panicked in God's will, who has allowed doubts and fears to overcome his faith, and is running away from God. Listen to his conversation, so utterly irrational. How empty is his talk. How hollow is his laughter. How tense his manner. How strained his countenance. If you're tempted to ever run back into the world, you'll be a colossal failure because you have too much of the Lord in you now to fit into the world like you once did. So why do we sometimes do just that? Short answer, because we can be dopey. The real problem lies in the fact that most of us have misplaced our security. We find security in things that are temporary, things that will ultimately fail us and disappoint us. Things like money, relationships, careers, retirement plans. Instead, we need to learn to put our security in the Lord alone, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and who will never leave you nor forsake you. He is completely worthy of all of our faith and our trust. But too often, we're like Randy Reed. Randy was a 34-year-old welder working on the top of a newly constructed water tower outside Chicago when he slipped and fell 110 feet. Barely missing rocks and debris, Randy landed in a six-foot pile of soft sand near the base of the tower. Co-workers called 911, and within minutes, the rescue crew was on the scene. Incredibly, a bruised lung was the only injury the construction workers sustained. But believe it or not, as he was being carried to the stretcher, to the ambulance, he looked into the faces of the paramedics and nervously pleaded, please don't drop me. (laughs) Now wait a minute. This guy falls off of an 11-story tower and lives, and he's concerned about a stretcher ride a couple feet above the pavement? But consider this. 
How often do we find ourselves questioning God's ability to carry us? The health of our marriage, our children's safety, the loneliness of involuntary singleness, our aging parents, skyrocketing college tuition, job security, investments gone sour, rejection, depression. It is easy to feel overwhelmed with fears. And we cry out, please, God, don't drop me. It seems often that we will trust God with getting us to heaven, but not trust him to get us through the problems in our everyday lives. And when we think about it in those terms, it does seem just a little bit silly, doesn't it? Verse 12, please. Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. All right, David, what are you going to do now? Pray? Quote Psalm 23? Nothing so spiritual, I'm afraid. This is why you should always bring your Bibles to church, be it digital or paper, because it sounds like verse 13 is something out of a Monty Python skit. Look at it. So he changed his behavior before them, feigned madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Okay. It's well established that this church drove me crazy a long time ago. But even on my worst days... I have never let saliva drip anywhere that I'm aware of. This has to be one of the lowest points in David's life. David, a cunning and shrewd actor, spins a facade of deception. He starts blubbering, spit down his lips and onto his beard. And then he starts babbling nonsensical words and spreading graffiti all over the town gates. I don't doubt he would have wet his pants if he thought that would have helped. All this was a sure sign of the people that David was completely insane. It's been said that honesty may be the best policy, but insanity is a far better defense. David could have easily written that saying. Now that phrase there in their hands indicates that Achish's servants had seized David and brought him to their king. But what an act that David put on for them. Slobbering hysterically, scraping the door with his nails, David put on the performance of his life. He contrived to change the fear and hatred of him to something else. And amazingly and sadly, he succeeded. David succeeded in stirring Achish to a mixture of pity and revulsion. The Philistine king could not believe this dribbling, scratching thing before him could be any threat. I can empathize with Achish. Sometimes that's how it feels in the ministry. When I have enough crazy people around me that you keep bringing more for me to deal with, I'm just joking, of course. I like crazy people. I can relate to them, which is sort of your fault, by the way, but we won't go into that. Akers himself must have liked, felt like Scar from the movie The Lion King, who said, I am surrounded by idiots. I'll try to interject as much culture as I can to help you. 
The fact that Philistine enemy number one managed to escape from their grasp by just a bit of dribbling and scratching showed how right that he was in this. In fact, things are so depressing and sad at this point. Let me read one of David's psalms so we can take a break from it. This is Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast before the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. As we read this psalm of David, this tribute to the faithfulness of God, it would be easy to assume that he composed it at the tabernacle, the place where sacrifices were offered, where incense filled the air, and where praise ascended to heaven. No wonder he would write, I will bless the Lord at all times. Or perhaps it would be easy to assume that David composed that psalm overlooking the hills of Bethlehem. It's easy to imagine that. As his flock was grazing, David's mind would begin working, meditating on the goodness and the greatness of God. No wonder he would write, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Or perhaps it would be easy to assume he composed it while he was in the grand and glorious city of Jerusalem. No surprise he would write in Psalm 34, 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. As plausible as any of those scenarios might be, however, they're not possible. For the heading of Psalm 34 tells us exactly where David was when he wrote it. The heading of Psalm 34 says this, A Psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before the king of Gath, who drove him away, and he departed. David wrote Psalm 34 in response to this very day that we are reading about this morning. Let me ask us a question here. What if you had lived in David's day? What if you had watched this story unfold? What would you have thought? I'm afraid I know all too well what I might have said. As we eat lunch today, which I'm free to be invited for, by the way, over the salsa and chips, I might wax spiritual and say something like, Did you hear about David? You know, the one with such courage, the one who killed Goliath, the one that Samuel anointed. I hate to tell you this, and I don't want to gossip, but poor David has went insane. He's even gone to the side of the enemy. It's so sad. He had such potential. That's what I might have said. But God would say otherwise. God would have said, that's not the way that it really is. You might write David off, but you don't know him like I do. Oh, it's true that he's in Gath. It's true that he's acting crazy. It's true that he lied. All those things are true. But what you don't see is his heart. We would have written David off. God, however, knew the Psalms that David would write. I wonder how many people I have written off because they're in Gath, because they have withdrawn from fellowship, and because they're acting a little bit crazy. When I first started the ministry, I thought it was my, my job to judge people, and it was God's job to love people. 
But now, many years later, I've come to realize that the reverse is actually the truth. I now know that it's my job to love people, and it's God's job to do all the judging. Our lives should reflect Colossians 3.12. It reads, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. David's story teaches me this morning that I must not write anyone off, count anyone out, or turn anyone away. Paul's words tells me the deepest part of me is to be nothing but merciful, meek, and kind. Knowing that only God sees the longing of the soul and the heart of the matter. I might suggest that perhaps more truth than some of us would like to admit that a failing Christian sometimes gets better treatment from the enemies of God than from his own Christian family. Sadly, there are times when the enemies of God treat the despairing people of God better than their own brothers and sisters. There are many times when the Philistines and Achish are more sympathetic, more caring, and more loving to a falling man or woman of God than their own family. I'm astounded and ashamed by those who preach the good news of the gospel for the salvation of the unsaved, but provide no way back for the saint who has fallen or who has failed. The church should be a refuge for those who have taken a spiritual nosedive. But sometimes the world just seems more accepting. John Bisogno, former pastor of Houston's First Baptist Church, tells a story of his, of his coming there to candidate for the pastorship many years ago. He said that as he entered the auditorium, it was dimly lit with just a few people huddled together. They were singing some old slow funeral-type song that was sad and depressing. Later that day, he took a walk downtown in Houston, and he came upon a jewelry store. It was some kind of grand opening, and there were bright lights and a greeter at the door who welcomed you with a smile. Inside, there was a celebration going on. There were refreshments and people having a good time and laughing and talking with each other. They welcomed him and offered him some punch. He said that after attending both the jewelry store and the church, if the jewelry store would have offered an invitation, he would have rather joined the jewelry store. Now, if I may brag on you guys for a minute, I'm always glad when we get visitors because I watch how many of you go out of your way to try and make them feel welcome here. Now, do all people who visit here make Calvary Chapel their home church? No. Only the ones who are going to heaven do. I'm kidding. Don't text me. I'm kidding. Now, you may think that greeting people and being friendly is not a big deal. But studies have proven over and over again that visitors remember that far more than the music or the sermon. As the old saying goes, people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. 
But back to David and his colossal failure. What a tragic picture the Scripture gives us this morning. What an undignified moment in the life of a man who has just been anointed by the Spirit of God. How utterly unworthy of his calling was his behavior. So what should we think about a man of God who has become involved in such a mess like that? Just from the human standpoint, it's hopeless. He has been tried and found waiting in the balances. God surely will have to discard such a man. But wait a minute before we condemn David. Let's first examine our own hearts this morning. Have we ever taken refuge in the company of God's enemies? Have we, as David did, feigned our behavior in order to escape our consequences of our failure to walk with the Lord? We could be really hard on David this morning, highlight his failings and destroy his hero status, but we have to remember just one thing before we do that. David is us. And there's something else also you should know. There is much pressure on Christians in this very regard. You should strive to be perfect, do your best, and be the person after God's own heart. You should try with all your might to succeed and to be a shining example. But you should know this one thing this morning. You will fail. You will fail to be perfect. In your experience, you may be crushed by the reality when that happens and you come to terms with your sin. You have tried to resist your weaknesses and temptations, but you failed to win the day. Now, don't get me wrong this morning. I'm not saying we should surrender to sin's impulses and say that we can't help sinning. But it is a fact that sooner or later we will sin. So David's example is our help when that happens. Like David, we should always keep coming back to the Lord. You know what's truly amazing? God knows that we are going to fail. The book of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's what I think. If it were us and we had been the ones who had been tempted and never sinned, we most likely would lord that over other people. We would have a really high horse to ride. But Jesus was tempted, and he did not sin, and now he's able to feel sorry for us when we do sin. That is incredible compassion. So if you're under a lot of pressure to be perfect, join the club. Better yet, join the club that puts that lie to rest. God doesn't really expect for you to come to him perfect. He just expects you to come. And as we close, we have to read this story along with the Psalms that David wrote concerning this time in his life. For then, even David's tragic failure can be an encouragement to our faith when the fear of man or circumstances becomes the dominant influence in our lives. For in those psalms we discover the enormity of God's grace and his desire to deliver us not only out of danger but out of our own foolishness 
and sinfulness. I wish I had never made a mistake. I wish I had never failed. I wish my witness was always sterling and Christ-like. But it hasn't always been. And it's not that I look for ways to blow it or mess things up, but sometimes I fail anyway. This isn't a shining moment in David's life. But it's not the end of the world, and it's not the end of David's ministry. God had grace for David's failure, and we need to know that not only for ourselves, but for others also. Where we look at someone and say, that wasn't their best day, and that wasn't their finest hour. But I won't let that hour define them for the rest of their lives. I think every one of us in here knows something of Gath this morning. So embarrassing and so humbling that we feel like our witness for Christ has been destroyed forever. But David teaches us that there is life after, and not only life, but fruit-filled, abundant life, if we will just accept the forgiveness and grace that is offered to us. I mean, you still have to clean up your beard and get those splinters out from underneath your fingernails. But we have to leave all that behind. Learn from it and move forward. In the Christian life, there is such a thing as a successful failure. Christian life is not about perfection. It's about direction. We will never be perfect, but we can use our failures as fuel for future holy living. A failure can be considered a success when I realize that I have fallen short of God's will for me. Then I learn all I'm supposed to learn from that. So the next time that that situation arises, I remember my past failure and do the opposite God-glorifying thing the next time that comes up. So when we approach the throne of God, we get mercy, not condemnation. And we find grace to help us in our time of need. Our need. Our weakness, our failure, we find grace to help us when we sin. And so let us be quick to extend that grace to others when they sin. To not do that would be, well, it would be crazy. So thankful, Lord, that you are that kind of God. That you are the faithful high priest. You are sympathetic to our failings. You remember that we are only dust, Lord. Yet you love us with an everlasting love that we still will never be able to comprehend. Eternity will be too short to praise you for all that you've done. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.